Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And we're the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. I just are United Methodist clergy women from upstate New York. And we're finding a different way to do spirituality. And we are recording, and we are the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. And joining us today as our special guest is my friend Amaury Tanyon Santos, who lives in Schenectady. He's one of my neighbors, and he's the director of the Schenectady Community Ministries. So welcome, Amaury. Hi. Um, it's, good to, it's good to be here. I'm looking forward to uh, the conversation. And... Hopefully, uh, to see what others uh, they think about it um, in the podcast world and engaging with that um, as well. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. So, Amari, um, the first place that we always start here on DLLP, as we have nicknamed this podcast, is uh, to tell us whatever you would like to about your faith journey. Um, uh I'm an ordained minister um, in the Presbyterian tradition, although I was originally uh, ordained a Baptist. And I begin there because uh, it's, it's not simply an easy identifier. I think it speaks to uh, some of the diverse experiences um, that get me to this point in, in my life. Um, I have also been ordained for 17 years, which is really at the heart to uh, believe because I don't think of myself as that old. Um, but I'm also at that age when I am realizing um, that I am the age and the time experience of those um, that I would either complain about or wanted to become like um, when I was growing up. Um, so, you know, there's that. Uh, around my, regarding my uh, sense of call to uh, religious leadership, uh, just came back from Puerto Rico a couple of days ago from, from holiday and got the opportunity to preach at uh, my home church and it was reminded as I was being introduced to my home church uh, that I knew as a as, as a kid that I wanted to be a pastor. You sometimes ask kids, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And kids say, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a, a, a fire person. I want to be a lawyer you know, or a doctor. I always said I wanted to be a pastor. Right. Um, and one of the one of the things I got to reflect on in, in, in the sermon uh, was how that congregation at a very early age encouraged uh, that discernment process, right? Um, and, and, and I've always been fascinated by the fact that for a lot of people coming into religious, really religious leadership, it's some, it, they articulate it as a call on themselves and, and, and a very um, it, it, individual um, experience. For me, it was always a community experience, right? I, I may have said it, but both in my family and in my home church, that was something everybody embraced and, and helped me through. So by the time I got to college, you know, I, I had a very clear sense of what I needed to do in order to get um, into formal, uh, formal religious leadership. And, and I did. I come from a very uh, uh, diverse uh, religious background. I was baptized originally a Roman Catholic. At age three, I started attending a Baptist church in in, in Puerto Rico. That was the congregation uh, that, nur that that nourished us and uh, that nourished uh, my uh, sense of call. But I never lost connection with that Roman Catholic uh, at the background. Um, I went to seminary at Princeton Seminary, which at uh, the many would uh, they would know it as a as a Presbyterian seminary. So I guess it was there where the Presbyterian bug um, at the bit me. Um, but as far as how that talks to my to my sense of religious identity, I would say that the reason I became a Presbyterian in the United States is because I was raised a good Baptist in Puerto Rico. One of the things in the Baptist tradition generally uh, that people that may not know is that Baptist uh, their governance is congregationalists, but in Puerto Rico, this is of a congregational. Um, a form of government that also emphasized the autonomy, that's how the Baptists call it, the autonomy of the local church. That is to say, every local congregation um, can figure out its own way of being and doing, to, 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 to make it simple. That sense of local identity was always um, 
counterweighted, if you will, with what in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico Baptists call interdependence, right? Every local congregation can decide of its own and articulate its own um, at the ways of being and doing, but together we can do much more and we can do much better because in the individual experience and skill set um, of the local congregation, they would never be, they would never be repeated with others. So together, all those skill sets can come together for a, a better sense of work and a deeper impact in the country. Right. Baptists in the United States tend to be significantly different. Right. And of course, one of the interests in the Baptist tradition in general is that Baptists don't circumscribe to a particular set of theological understandings. Right. Methodists are Wesleyans, right? You know, and I, I am not a Wesleyan. So I'm not going to explain it, it, what that means, you know. But for those who are, there, you know, there, there's a very clear distinction um, between Wesleyan um, uh, tradition and the Reformed tradition where I come from, right? Presbyterians are of the Reformed Christian faith, right? You know, and it, we are very particular, you know, it, uh, as to it, what does that mean and how that influences not only the way we organize ourselves in governance, but how and why it, that we do things. Baptists don't. So the, the reason why there's such a, a, a broad diversity of Baptists is because the only thing we can somewhat agree upon is how we organize ourselves, which is very loose, right? Um, so, so my experience in Puerto Rico is that that very loosely defined way we organize ourselves and how we became uh, to be um, uh, a tradition that was counter somewhat to the English Reformation that got us Anglicanism, right? And out of which the Methodist tradition it comes from, right? Um, and also this very peculiar English version of Presbyterianism, right? Also came Congregationists and Baptists, right? Um, and, and, and I sometimes joke, um, I'm a historian by, by trade, that what Baptists did in, in their conversations with Congregationists and Presbyterians was Y'all figure out the theology thing. We're all we're only going to uh, figure out how to be our best selves in the world by affirming liberties, right? Um, but that sense that even in the in this um, hyper commitment to your individual sense of what God is with you and for you and in you, how you see that individual connected to a community in a local congregation. And how that local congregation they gets connected to the wider um, communities of faith, you know, that that follow um, at the Jesus. That intentionality was important for me. <clears throat> Many years later, I'm in the United States, study, get ordained. At that start, I, I served congregations in White Plains, New York, and and in Elizabeth. And it was in my second call where that need, because of a struggle, the congregation I was serving it was going through, of having the larger body of Christ in the Baptist tradition come alongside us didn't happen, right? Um, and, and, and I found myself for the first time alone. Many of us who are in ministry, the, the, we, we might have been told in some way uh, or, or another that uh, ministry is a very uh, lone, lonely uh, uh, profession, right? I am blessed to say, um, partly because I know Natalie as well in, in, in this work uh, that, that I'm doing in Schenectady, that I have never been alone in ministry. It's been rough, but I have never been alone in ministry. That was the first time I felt alone in, in ministry. When asking for help, the response was, that was a, that's a local church matter. You need to deal with it at the buyer's right? And I told myself, and I started praying and said, I need to be in a tradition. Um, I, I want to be in a tradition. I yearn for a tradition where the connection to the larger body is intentional in the way I learned it, even in the Baptist tradition in Puerto Rico, right? Um, and, you know, one thing led to another, another and, and now I am a Presbyterian. I did uh, a regional church ministry for a while before coming to Scandinavian Community Ministries, and I think that sense of being part of a community um, that discerns together and helps each other and works together has led me to this position here in Schenectady Community uh, Ministries. Um, and I think we're going to talk about it about this in a bit. But the only thing that I'll say, uh, how that connects to my faith, faith journey, is that one of the big challenges and opportunities, and I think they're both, that Schenectady Community Ministries has, is that it is an interfaith-based organization, right? Um, and 
that very loose um, value and identity, right? I think will set Connecticut Community Ministries apart from many other not-for-profits in the capital region of New York State, right? Um, and for me, it allows for yet another experience of I am not in it by myself. I'm, I'm struggling with my own um, uh, expressions of it, right? Um, but there are others whom I can rely on and walk alongside with in their own struggles to make sure that we can be the more faithful expressions of both who we are and how we ha have interface, right? Whether it's used or otherwise, right? How we have interface that we can be fully ourselves. We, I, I don't think anyone can be fully itself or themselves without a community, right? Um, and, and I think it's going to community ministries um, because it is an interfaith-based organization. Um, it's giving me now for the past almost two years this opportunity at the, uh, of being able to do good work, but to do good work with and alongside mm -hmm. a community of years. Yeah, totally, totally. And to add um, a very delicious uh, theological thing to what you were saying about how you can't be full yourself unless you're in community, that was a belief, a very strongly held belief of Howard Thurman, who is one of my super all-time favoritist ever theologians. Um, and he taught um, that self, community, and God were all three of them completely and inherently intertwined. So if you went on like a self-discovery journey and you were trying to understand your own self better, you would end up discovering about God at the same time. And it would also pull you closer into your community. If you went venturing, looking for community and friends and organizations and things like that to be part of, you would find God in the midst of those people. And you would also learn more about yourself. If you went trying to learn more about God and trying to build a closer relationship with the divine, you would be led right back to the people of God, because that is how God would teach you about the divine self and God would hold up a mirror and teach and tell you to look and see your own face. So you, you cannot separate any of those three aspects from one another. And that's very beautifully played out in Sikkim. It's uh, one of many reasons why that ministry is just so incredibly valuable in this community. Um, um, the, 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 an opportunity of, of being a space where every, right, where everybody can come and not simply get served, Mm -hmm. but be themselves, um, either in being served or in service. And I think the next big um, uh, institutional step for mm -hmm. Scanetary Community Ministries in how we deepen that commitment mm -hmm. is, is that it, it, it's, it's to move beyond the serving and the, ser the, 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 the served and the, ser and the served and the serving, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Breaking down the binary, right? to simply being, you know, the community that supports each other, right? Because mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's regretful that we are in, in a world, I, I think there's a very particular American um, uh, problem, both mm -hmm. with binaries and with, uh, and with individualism, right? Um, and yet, uh, Poverty, like that we have learned again, it's, it's, it's not a new concept, but we have learned again through the Corporate People's Campaign, both in New York State and, and nationwide. One, that poverty is a construct, and, and we could talk about that until the cows get to come home. Um, but two, which I think has been uh, perhaps uh, the most impactful statements, or one of the most impactful statements from the more recent uh, proposal Campaign, most of us, right, are a catastrophic event away from being poor, mm -hmm. right? Um, which then means that many of us, even those who are at the fully and gainfully employed as ministers of word and sacraments or as executive directors of not for profits, are really not that far away from, uh, the, from the reality many people who are close to us. So, so how do you create a community that is aware 
of itself and out of each other, right? So that when those catastrophic circumstances happen, and, and a lot of them because they are systemically um, allowed to happen, right? We don't have to go out um, and, and, and struggle with pride and, 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 and this burden of how people will see me, but we can immediately know we can approach a community that will be there for me because I have been part of a community that I have been there for and with, mm-hmm. right? Um, that, that, that redefining community um, and, and all of us being a, a part of it, you know, this, this, this us versus them really doesn't exist. Most of us are in the us you know, at, the, at the part, um, part of it. And we have the resources, right? To make sure that those in the now who are in need get provided, also knowing that anything can happen and we might be the ones in the need and can have it, whatever it is that we need. Yeah, totally. I I feel like some of that too comes from uh, learning the spiritual practice of being comfortable with not understanding quite everything. I think a lot of that sort of rugged individualism that we as Americans clutch so tightly comes from this sense of if if I can control every bit of my own destiny, then bad things won't happen to me because I'm not going to let them happen to me. And if bad things happen to other people, well, it's their fault for letting it happen or for, for creating the circumstances in which they happen. And I, I think I think one of the reasons why we tend to clutch to that so tightly is because it gives us a sense of power or empowerment that that we can inoculate ourselves against tragedy or against Mm. crisis. Um, But I think if we, if we can lean into the spiritual practice of not knowing everything, not being able to control everything, not being able to understand everything, then we can kind of more openly, um, embrace this sense of community that that we're talking about we can more openly embrace this idea that we are almost all of us one crisis away from financial crisis um yeah and and be more compassionate towards each other in that yeah totally and also the 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 idea that we don't have to wait for something catastrophic for, for us to get there right you know um I'm sure this is not uh, um, exclusive of the Christian tradition, right? But this it, it's central to our whatever tradition that we practice, right? This sense of wonder, right? Um, you know, it, it, in order in order for us to be awed, right? It, uh, to, to, to experience it, the wonder, right? Um, in order for us to embrace faith, the way Hebrews um, uh, defines. Faith, the the the, the letters of Hebrews uh, defines faith. We, we need to, I think, also embrace um, a, a sense of uh, of wonder, um, uh, which I think uh, uh, goes it goes deeper into what Emily was suggesting. We don't have to know everything, right? And we're actually practicing a faith that is encouraging us to keep things, especially. Our engagement with each other in the faith community, our engagement with our families in the internal part of our home, and I think also our engagement with the community at large in as simple as terms as possible, right? Um, I, I was able to preach um, uh, two Sundays ago uh, on, on the John text, uh, the, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, I think beginning uh, chapter 29, mm-hmm. right? Um, John opens, uh, opens up the book, you know, and, and talks to this... Um, uh, strangely beautiful description of uh, of who God was at, at the beginning and how God became incarnate, and then the uh, religious and political authorities at the, at the time come to John the Baptist, right? Not the same John who wrote, you know, the gospel, um, mm-hmm. to ask, you know, who are you, you know, and and, and what's this dude at the who's this dude that you're talking about, you know, um, and what the gospel writer does right after that, right? is to have John, I think, position him to do two things. One, establish that his role as John the Baptist was to prepare minds, hearts, and souls for the imminent 
um, appearance of the presence of God in human form, right? Um, but I, but in doing that, letting people know, especially the authorities um, of his time, letting people know that his call was not to follow John, but to be prepared for what was coming, right? There's there's this empty space, you know, in, in from from where John was to what was to come, you know, that thing that we don't know, that we just need to expect. I, one of the reasons I I um, I think both I have a, I have a lot I have a love hate relationship with the Gospel of John. Um, one of the reasons I have that love hate relationship, right, is that as a historian, as a brown man, as a migrant man, I have had to figure out the system, right? In, in in order to be in the right place in an articulate way, in order for to, to move, you know, our hopes and aspirations forward, right? Um, I think the synoptic gospels give me that, you know, the 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 the, 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 the sequence and consequence of things that happen in the synoptic gospel. You you can clearly follow them. Again, I'm also a historian by trade. John doesn't care about that. Right. And one of the things that I said in the sermon uh, at the Sunday school was that for John, the important thing was to describe who this person was in order to make things to, to, to make sense of the things that happened. Right. He had nothing to do about what happened in order to understand. It was to who he was in order to understand. In that um, uh, 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 text um, in John 1, 29 and on. Twice, John signals, there's Jesus. You know, there's the person I'm talking to you about. Mm-hmm. Second time, two of his disciples listened to what John the Baptist said. And then the, the, the gospel writer writes something like, you know, and then they went on and followed Jesus and asked. And this is where I think the sense of wonder is important. They didn't ask um, for an explanation of what was to come. What they asked was, where do you live? Right. Where do you live? Right. Jesus says, you know, come and he shows them everything except where he lives. Mm-hmm. Right. Because this is it. Right. It, it's, it's, it's in doing all these things. I wonder what was it that they that the both of them saw. Right. That then drew Andrew, I'm assuming, to tell Jesus, you know, give me one second. I need to share this with one person in particular and go get his brother, you know, who eventually we know as Peter, right? And what Andrew told Peter was, let me show you, I found the Messiah. Mm. I found the chosen one, right? There's so many, there's so much unfilled in that story. And yet the excitement of Andrew to go tell his brother, right? I think he's feeding it that sense of wonder that allowed not, not simply the coalescing, the coming together of, you know, this group of 12 at the Jesus, right? But in the Gospel of John, animated their sense of wonder, right? And of course, wonder is going to lead to, I think, in in in, in one of two ways, sometimes at the, both at the same time, either fear, because fear is really, I, I, I think fear is nothing but um, this engaging with the unknown, because you don't know what it's going to do for you. Right, fear, or on the or on the on the other side, peace and solidarity. Right, the sense of, the sense of um, not simply calm, but of wholeness that allows me to stay and and, and be with a community, and then act in solidarity. Right, you know, <clears throat> solidarity is more than empathy. Right, it's not that I you know that oh I I, I see and 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 somewhat comprehend in my heart um, what's going on. But I will stay with you, even even though it might not be my experience. Your experience at the moment, whether of joy or pain, is something I want to be with. You know, is is in solidarity, right? Um, uh, mercy um, in 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 Spanish is called misericordia, right? Um, but we know in both the, the Greek and the, and the Hebrew, right? Um, mercy is a movement of the feelings, right? For the being with, um, it's, it, again, it's not simply at the empathy, you know. And, and I think that moved Andrew to find Peter. I think that at the move 
those now three disciples, you know, to continue to, to fight that sense of wonder, right? That even in times of fear, grounded them. And in times of joy, allowed them, you know, at the two, at the two to share that sense of wonder, mm-hmm. right? And I think community um, is something um, that will continue to encourage us in being, again, better witnesses to what we say we follow. Totally. I really appreciate that mini sermon that you just delivered of Maori. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, for the sake of our listeners here, and especially those who are far from Schenectady, um, I'm going to ask a Maori to, uh, to explain exactly what uh, Sikkim does for the community mm-hmm. in just a second. But to what you were explaining about you know, breaking this binary between serving and being served, and this very real reality that you could become a person in need of help at any time. Um, I have been on both ends as far as Sikkim goes because uh, my church uh, is very involved in, in, in this relationship with the Schenectady Community Ministries, but I've also been a benefactor of Schenectady Community Ministries Food Pantry uh, during the two two different times that my family has been afflicted by this terrible modern plague that we call COVID-19 and then been boarded up at home and not able to leave and get food and supplies and things like that. Uh, There is really nothing in modern times that I have experienced that has humbled me like COVID. COVID really shows you, uh, you ain't that special. Germs are for everyone. So, um, and then the set, you know, the second time that we all had COVID together, my parents were with us. So it was, yeah, seven of us all locked up in a house, not able to go anywhere, except for the week that my dad was in the hospital with it. So like, you know, we live in these protected little bubbles, especially when we're in a cushy little suburb like Neskayuna, where we think, oh, you know, I have my pretty little house and my pretty little yard. And, you know, everything is just really nice here. And I'm, you know, I am this upstanding citizen who pays all my bills and everything is fine and everything is hunky dory. Then everybody in your house gets devastatingly sick. And suddenly you are as much in need of help as anyone you have ever met. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, so really we, we all need to understand that we all need each other or we won't survive. Mm-hmm. So on that note, Amaury, I would love you to, uh, to really extrapolate for our listeners, what is Schenectady Community Ministries? Um, and, and, and I will try to, uh, to keep it short. 55 uh, years ago, 56 uh, this year, um, uh, years ago, a group of um, at the mostly Protestant uh, at the white leaders uh, gathered together um, to identify what were um, immediate issues of need in the East Connecticut city, right? Um, at the, so for those of you at the, who are listening who are not from the greater capital region, um, uh, Albany is the capital city of the state of, of New York. Um, the Quadri City area, right? If, if you want to call it that, um, Albany's connected to Troy and Saratoga, right? That make up, you know, the the, the four metropolitan areas of the uh, capital region. Um, and Schenectady is the second smallest geographically county in in the state um, of New York, right? Is the westernmost uh, portion of that uh, 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 geographic area that I um, described. Um, it's also one of the most uh, diverse areas in the state of New York, outside of the city of, of New York, right? So 55 years ago, a group of the, the white Christian leaders that they got together um, and the Unitarian Research Society also joined that early conversation um, to figure out what were things that could be tended to, right? A historian, right? If, um, if someone's speaking, the interesting thing is that 55 years ago was around the time when what were dubbed as a race riots, were happening throughout the country, right? Um, the, I worked in White Plains, New York. I worked in uh, Newark, New Jersey. I worked in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And even to this day, you can still see the um, remnants, right? Um, the, the very real physical marks of, of, of the consequences, right? At the, of, of that very tumultuous time 
in the in U.S. history, right? They never happened in Schenectady, um, and uh, part of the thought is in part because religious leaders, you know, they got in the got in the front of it, right? Um, and seeking to avoid it, and I think we need to recognize that that was part of it, right? Um, it, what are the things that we should do? So they decided they were going to do housing, elderly, and childcare, right? As part of that first um, uh, set of things that that um, Schenectady community communities that they would do. Some 30 years ago, so 20, some 20 years after that, food became uh, the thing that, that we started doing. It all started at a Methodist church, uh, a downtown church. Uh, first United Methodist um, allowed us to put a food pantry in in their basements, and we added that service. Um, at the, one of our volunteers, um, uh, who's a member of uh, Bellevue Reformed Church, um, challenged my predecessor and said, food is, is one thing that we can do that will have a very real, very immediate impact in poor people throughout the city, right? We need to actually expand this thing, right? So uh, some 15 years ago, we moved to our current site at 839 Albany Street um, because she, I think, prayerfully and intentionally decided to walk the city and get to learn it, right? Where this service will be more um, impactful. So we're on Hamilton Hill. Um, which means that we are in the poorest and most diverse neighborhood in the capital region of New York, right? Um, and the spot that she found, she didn't find it by herself. She found in conversation with the people of this community, right? So these many years later, right, and, and having started um, as a food pantry um, in, at First United Methodist and 27 years ago, um, renting a school bus, preparing a whole bunch of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, which you can't hand out anymore, you know, and a whole bunch of milk going to Central Park in Schenectady and handing them out during the summer for the kids that were there playing, right? We are now, <clears throat> Schenectady Community Ministries, a collaborative of some 50 faith communities of four religious traditions, and altogether, uh, it is some 15 movements and denominations um, that they represented, managing the largest food pantry in the capital region of New York, right? Um, in, in the numbers, what that means is that in 2022, we served upwards of 15,000 visits to our pantry of Burgers, and I'll talk about those in, in a minute. That means that we handed out over 600,000 meals worth of groceries out of the, the food pantry. We also run the summer meals program at the, for the city and the immediate suburbs of the of Schenectady uh, County. Uh, at the height of the summer of 2022, we were serving 950 children a day, right? Um, and we also have a two acre, um, at the farm operation on three sites, all in the city of, of New York, that is community-based, collaborative, and urban, right? Um, and, and, and those are our ways of providing, uh, food access. The, so, so that's what we do, right? <clears throat> we are currently in the process of, of redefining, um, or, or re-articulating, I should say, uh, the, the, who we are, right? Um, so we are interfaith. There are 50 faith communities that are connected to us. The Canadian Community Ministries history has allowed it to have profound partnerships in the private sector, in, in, in the public sector, with other uh, not-for-profits, right? So the question is, um, how do we use those very, that, that strong history of community engagement, um, that uh, faith foundation, right, and in, in order to propel not simply what we do, but why we do this, right? So that we can start shifting um, at the also some of our work, um, that doing into advocacy. One of the things that that, that that our member faith communities have called us to to be and and do, and this is something that I'm really looking forward with Natalie and other um, uh, religious leaders um, uh, in, in in the city, is to begin seeing food access, which is what Sikkim does well, right? As an opportunity to engage the community for gathering and empowerment for advocacy, right? Um, at the, how do we move from, the, how, how do we go beyond, not, not move beyond, go beyond our ability to procure funding, to just use it as, as an example, a lot of which comes from the public sector, right? To be able to go to legislators and say, so thank you for, for the funding in order to, uh, to, to give Natalie and her family, right? These grocery sets in a moment um, of, of need, but let's understand what does 15,000 visits and over 600,000 meals worth of food actually mean 
for thousands in Schenectady, right? Um, so that we can begin addressing what are the systemic issues that are creating and keeping people in, in poverty. And I'll, and I'll end with this. I, I said I was going to keep it short, and, and I often don't. Um, every, I, I, I think I've heard this throughout my, throughout my vocation as a pastor. I definitely heard it when I started working uh, at Princeton, uh, at Princeton, sorry, at um, Schenectady Community Ministries, um, that we need to work ourselves out of business. And what I wanted to tell, what I want to tell people that, that say me this is that if we have, if Schenectady Community Ministries has not worked itself out of business for 55 years, we're not, right? Um, what, I, what I think we need to do Right, and, and and we're preparing it ourselves to to do this, and, and I'm challenging our assembly and 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 our members. You know, we have five years. You know, our 60th anniversary is coming up, and we should be able to 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 readily unveil. You know, how we're going to do this advocacy and community organizing work. Is organize the people who are the victims of the system um, to partner with them and hear what are the solutions that they have already come up with. In this reality, the, the level of wisdom and resilience that exists in many of the communities that we serve is profound. And I believe that place in the proper spaces, right, with lawmakers, with uh, it, uh, uh, grantors, right, um, in developing the strategy for organizations like ours, we will start moving beyond, and, I, and I, I do mean that, start moving beyond simply seeing the gap and even addressing the gap to understand that we will never fill the gap because I think poverty is a, is a real systemic issue done from outside. But to build the infrastructure to go over, to build the right infrastructures that are sustainable to go over the gap, right? Um, and and that's 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 where we're moving from, right? Um, and, and where I think that our being a faith-based organization strongly positions us to do that in a way that I think other organizations who are not faith-based could or would. There's 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 this impetus, this requirement even in many of our faith traditions that compel us to do that. Totally, totally. And so to give a broader sense of part of that purpose and that context for the three of us sitting here having this wonderful conversation and also for whomever listens to this afterwards. Um, I'm feeling a little bit heavy hearted this morning because, and this is going to be, this is going to be published a, a little bit from now. So there's going to be a removal of time for our listeners. But last night we had a city council meeting in Schenectady and Nicole uh, John Simone, who is a local uh, Baptist pastor or no, AME, a local AME pastor, as well as the president of our local chapter of the NAACP, um, asked a bunch of clergy people, as many as we could, basically to fill up to fill up the town hall and all show up at the city council meeting, mm -hmm. because we were voting on something called the Clean Slate Act which to distill it into as simple terms as we can was uh, an anti-discrimination act, something that would address the population of people who have served jail time living here locally. And that would, um, that would remove your, remove an ability to discriminate against you from potential landlords and from potential employers so that if you if you are the person who would normally have to check the box yes I have served prison time yes I have been convicted of a felony that um, that would not hinder you from being able to uh, apply for jobs here and from being able to find safe housing here 
And so we showed up impassioned last night and I brought two of my three children with me. God bless everyone else for tolerating me. But anyway, you know, we showed up impassioned and we talked about how easily you could end up in a situation where you end up in jail, not because you're a bad person, but because you're human and because human people make mistakes and especially human disenfranchised people get pushed to a place where they have no other choice but to exist outside the law because the law itself is prejudiced. And so we were arguing for, you know, what is even the point of releasing somebody from incarceration if you're going to put them back into the community and give them no means to be able to integrate back into society again? You may as well just keep them in jail because if you get out and you can't find a place to live and a job, statistically, you are extremely likely to go right back to jail. And so we have this perpetual cycle here that uh, very disproportionately affects the poor and people of color, exactly the communities that a Maori is serving. And it was very painful last night when we argued these exact points that they were countered with, but we have to go hard on crime because otherwise there's just going to be so much crime. And this, uh, you know, think of the victim stuff, which of course, we are concerned about those who are survivors of crime, but th- that it's not an either or thing. You can have you can have compassion for both. Jesus very much teaches us that. And ultimately the vote came down to a tie. So the Clean Slate Act failed. So on my way home from this, I was explaining all of these dynamics as best as I could on a car ride to my six and eight-year-old about the different about what what the systemic system looks like, what systemic racism looks like, what systemic poverty looks like, and what implicit and covert racism looks like in this world, and how how hard that can be for you know me and my kids driving back to our cute little house in the suburbs to fully wrap our heads around. So all of that is this, you know, const- this, this constellation of thoughts that I'm carrying in my head and my heart this morning. And it leads me right back here to this conversation with a Maori about, you know, the, the, the populations that Schenectady uh, Community Ministries hopes to serve and serve to empowerment to the point that Sikkim works itself out of a job. Um, are exactly these communities, the poor, the people of color, those stuck in the inner city in a food desert, those disenfranchised from educational opportunities, those disenfranchised from safety, and those that we deem as the outsider because of our own ignorance. So, you know, what can me and my car full of white people do to 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 take down that fence and start building bridges instead and help um on sunday i had the opportunity to meet um with uh to have a conversation with uh, seth limmer uh, a, a jewish leader um out of chicago um that was brought in by um our local reform uh synagogue uh congregation gates of heaven and met Cutler, their their rabbi um, and having a conversation um, around uh, the, the, the diversity and divisiveness that exists um, in, in the communities that we serve and how our moral tradition calls us, right, to, um, to, to, to be present, you know, and, and engage in those. And I'm, I knew we were going to get that to this point around <clears throat> community engagement and conversation. Uh, and, and learning it from each other and, and try to, in, in a time where people don't seem to be talking to each other, right, but at each other, right, um, I, I, I wonder, I, I tuned in online to, to the meeting yesterday, right, um, and, I, and I wondered, not having the sense of the room, not having the spirit of the room because I wasn't there, right, um, how... How the the, the 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 witnessing that happened from the people that spoke in, in 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 the public hearing part of the meeting, and then the discussion that was had in the vote to 
to to support a, a, a to support a resolution so that the state would pass the Clean Slate Act. That has been in consideration, by the way, by the New York State Assembly um, and Senate for a good three years, right? So this is not new, right? Um, how that discussion was articulated, I, I, I felt that people were talking over each other, right? Mm -hmm. Not with each other. So in, mm -hmm. in the conversation on Sunday, it, 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 somebody asked a question around, you know, so how... What are suggestions around engaging with people um, that don't don't seem to want to listen, right? You know, they 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 made over already their minds and 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 they're not going to listen to and and I made a distinction um, between I explained why for me a distinction between dialogue and conversation is so important, right? We use those terms at the, in, in, interchangeably. I have I have been very public um, at, around my um, uh, profound issue with using dialogue in order to uh, talk about interfaith dialogue, which is you know what what, what I'm now called to do and be right in mm -hmm. in, in this role in Scandinavian community ministries, right? Um, because in both Spanish and English, Spanish is my mother tongue. In, in, in Spanish and English, dialogue. It's 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 a it's a social and political affair where people with multiple opinions come together and seek to convince the other of their opinions, and a decision or a transaction is made, right? Um, conversation, on the on the other hand, in Spanish particularly, it's simply the gathering of people just you know talking with each other, right? And that's all they're doing. The, the purpose of the of conversation is just that, to converse. I added to that that in Spanish, the word conversación, which is the one that we translate to conversation, is translated, it, it, it also shares a root with the word convivir. And the thing is that I don't have a word in English for convivir. The best way I can translate that is to say living together, or, or better yet, living with, convivir, right? Um, And it is in that living together, in conversation, and I think it's it's, it's more simply uh, uh, the the better image for that is being with your family, right? You know, you're a parent, you share parenthood with somebody else, and and, and you raise it to your your kids. Um, that doesn't mean that anyone in your five uh, person system or my four person system are all thinking the same. Even though I would love for my children to, you know, kind of thing, right? It is in that living together that spaces of convergence of thought or opinion become apparent all the time. And then you, you operate within those spaces of convergence, right? You don't ignore the differences, right? But if you need to move forward, you operate out of the convergences, not out of the differences, right? Um, the problem with conversación versus dialogar, with conversation versus dialogue, is that conversation requires the building of relationships and the building of relationships requires time, mm -hmm. right? And what's more, you can't legislate relationships, right? An upper body of anything, be that the conference or the presbytery or the city council, right? Mm -hmm. Cannot tell me you need to be this at best they can tell me what i need to what i can or cannot do right but they can tell tell me what i have to be the definition of who i am is built upon my set of relationships over time right so in order to move away from the binary of served and serving in order to you know us versus them um, who are a middle class, whatever in this day and age middle class even means, right, requires not a scientific understanding, as important as it is, not a scientific understanding of who the poor are, but why does poverty exist, right? Um, why not, not not what a colony is. Let, let me make, bring it bring it political, right? But why does colonialism exist, right? 
um, not who black or brown people are as opposed to white, but what a white supremacy exists, right? And the way to do that is to understand the real consequences each one of those have. And, the, and in order to understand the real consequences, you need to be in relationship with people, right? The example that Seth gave, um, it was around um, uh, the concept of uh, deep canvassing, right? Literally, people putting themselves out there, knocking on doors with a set of questions, right? And wanting to sit down and listen to the response, right? That takes time. The reason Andrew was so excited, and we don't know the content of the conversation. We only know that he had it. That Andrew got really excited to go to his brother that was, you know, then named Peter. To tell him, I found the chosen one. Right? Was because both Jesus and him gave themselves the opportunity to be in conversation. And Andrew wanted to bring his brother to the conversation, not to convince him, not to convert him, not to, to bring him to the conversation, right? Um, and in a time where we want instant gratification or immediate results, in a time when I have to jump over hoops in writing grants, because grantors, God bless them, want real change done real quick, right? Um, I, I know, I, I understand the, the impact, that, that, that's how the, 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 um, the sector calls it, right? The impact that, that, that they want to exert. But in order for it to be long-standing, sustainable, and transformational, it has to be with them. And, and it is that with that requires time. And, and I think we, we experienced that at the city hall meeting um, at the last night, you know, our, are we doing this just to be expedient? Which expediency, you know, there's space for expediency, right? Um, but in order to understand the real impact the current set of laws is having, right, on people who, people who in consequence of what they may have done, and I want to emphasize may have done, right? Will remain perpetually marginalized? Have we had that conversation, right? Um, yeah. 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 And it was, um, it, it was painful to sit in city council and realize that we have really not had those conversations. And, and to see exactly how gigantic that chasm was. Oh, I mean, it's, it's the reason why in Schenectady Clergy Against Hate, which you and I are both in, uh, why we have, we have made a, a commitment to be at more city council meetings to help make these better conversations happen and to help everybody learn how to play nice in the sandbox because there was a lot of sand getting thrown last night. Uh. The, 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 um, the, the silver lining, right? Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't want to think pragmatic just for the, for, for the sake of being pragmatic, right? But, but I think the silver lining of how that conversation happened last night at City Council, as opposed to many other spaces, right? Where a vote might have been taken and then there's no context for the vote, right? Each one of the um, six legislators uh, present explain their vote and and um if, if you guys you know go back and and see the proceedings you know it, it was uh, a three uh vote it, it required four there was one um uh, member of the council that wasn't present um i am i am hopeful that because each one of them shared why of their vote whether i shared the reasoning ideologically or not that's, that, that, it, it, I don't think it matters at this point. That each one of them, because they're lawmakers, that each one of them will remain in sharing their reasoning, right? And hopefully we'll see some space of, of convergence for justice for people who are formerly incarcerated in particular, right? 
it's not it's nothing really that the city council can vote on. They, they were only voting on a resolution to support um, the state uh, if they're doing this. But there's so many things that can happen uh, locally, right? Um, that hopefully, hopefully we will all be able to see each other's humanities. What religious leadership needs to do, I think, is make sure, and, and I know that we have had this conversation in at Kansas City Clergy and State, is not simply what do we do again, but why do we do it, right? And I think one of the whys religious leadership is going to particularly, but I think in general, need to be present. The doing is being present. The why we do it, right, is because we have a moral and ethical imperative in each one of our traditions, right? Um, if, if if we're going to stay with the John Johannian, you know, the, 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 the Gospels um, uh, line, John is very intentional in explaining God didn't only save the world. We can break that down in, in, in many ways, but, you know, that's only. But God did it because God so loved the world. That opening that statement in John 3.16, a very complicated uh, uh, verse. Um, how do we interpret it anyway? But John opened that statement with a why. Right? We, we, we have the call and the opportunity of being right, a moral and ethical uh, presence. And I don't think we need to shy away from our political, from our ideological um, perspectives, right, you know, but to remain grounded, not in, not in our ideological perspective, but in our religious authority, right, as um, providers of groundedness in ethical and moral division. You speak so beautifully, by the way, just in case nobody's told you that lately. Thank you. Oh my God. <laughs> so, Amaury, while we sit here together, one of the questions that we ask everybody who sits in the hot seat of this podcast is, what's something that excites you right now? Um, Scientific community ministries uh, will, is beginning a process to, um, I, I guess, earlier to identify and articulate our identity as an institution, you know, the, the why, in order to get into um, into the, the how. What really excites me is how we got here, right? You know, um, the, the, the pandemic, it, it's a cliche at this point, you know, the, the, the pandemic um, didn't cause um, any particular issue, it revealed. Uh, the, the the many issues uh, the people who are at the marginalized and disenfranchised um, uh, have a continue to suffer, right? Um, one of the things that I'm, 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 I'm excited about and, and hopeful is that the, the, the slowdown of the pandemic, uh, the uh, Community Ministries Pantry never closed uh, during uh, the pandemic. Food was one of those things, you know, that were quickly needed and because of our size and, and, and ability to, to, to distribute and connect through uh, through networks and, and partnerships, we, we kept it going. One of the things that we perfected um, uh, in during the pandemic was our capacity to uh, uh, procure higher quality, better food, right? But in doing that, and, and, and it's still happening anecdotally, but I think we, we want, I want to bring it core to what we do. It wasn't only about getting better quality food through some funding that was made available by the state and, and, and the generosity of many of our donors, certainly our 50 member faith uh, communities and, and, and many others. Somebody at some point was working the line and asked, so not only do you want food, you know, not, not, not going beyond the yes and no questions, you know, what kind of food would you want? That opened up a whole conversation that may happen that, that may not have happened had we not gone beyond the yes and no question or, 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 the, or the binaries that exist, right? Yes and no questions are binaries too, by the way. Um, that opened up a whole conversation around the truly profound cultural diversity that exists in Kansas City, city and county, 
and the religious diversity that exists here. And once we started talking about foods related to religious practice, right? One thing became quite apparent to us. It's like, how is it that we being a faith-based organization never thought of asking this question, especially around religious practice, right? So now we are now we are very intentional of constant, consistently and constantly asking our our guests. So um, a, a a season of celebration is coming. We just came at the, out of uh, December, right? You know, uh, uh, the, the multiple celebrations that happen in at, at the end of the year. Um, what kinds of food would you at the, be having at the you know during Kwanzaa or Yule or Christmas at the, or or Hanukkah, right? You know, and, and what does that mean? Um, when we are approaching Ramadan, we'll be asking the same question, right? What kind of food do we need to procure in order for the significantly and increasingly uh, Muslim community in in our midst that would that would require? Um, when, how much, how often, right? So that we're not simply now feeling bellies, which is usually how food pantries, you know, were dubbed at the beginning, right? And we're not neither simply nourishing that is telling people this is what you need to eat in order for you to have uh, a, a good diet. And because you can buy your own food, I'm going to give it to you. However, I think you, that you, you need it. Right. We are being responsive. Right. And affirming of how people define themselves. Right. Because food and again. In the Christian tradition, it's all over the place, you know. But it's also true in 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 all Christian in all uh, religious traditions, as you say, um, represented as Canadian community ministries. Food is core and central, right? Um, so I'm really excited how this awareness in what we do around cultural and religious diversity will begin to impact our operations and our our operations, our governance, and our advocacy. In the work that we do, again, in a way that I think Canadian Community Ministries was particularly positioned to, to do and be, right? That many others that they wouldn't have because we're a faith-based uh, organization. I'm really excited about how that is impacting at the, our operations. I'm excited um, about uh, so next Saturday. This, this will happen. Um, uh, this podcast will come out at this somewhat later, you know. But on 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 Saturday of the week that we're recording, we're going to be uh, hosting our second seat chair. Um, in Schenectady County, uh, which means that our farm staff and our partnership with the school district and with Cornell, the Cornell Cooperative Extension in uh, are going to come to our campus on Hamilton Hill and host anybody and everybody that would come to give out seeds, right? In order for you to grow at the next, uh, at the, you know, next seasons at the, the fruits and, and vegetables. But the interesting thing is that we're not simply giving out seeds; the procurement of these seeds happens. Because our farm staff had conversations with our guests and, uh, and and volunteers in the farms and said simply, not what grows here, but what would you want to grow? Why would you want to grow it? How will you use it? How is it significant to your culture? How is it significant to your health? How is it significant to your religious practice? Right? Uh, maybe it will be we might be able to grow it at the for a shorter season because you know the, the, we are in a four season um, environment in, in in New York State, you know. But it's not about growing it; it's about understanding why is it important to grow it, right? Um, that development of spaces for conversation, from moving from a transactional relationship to uh, with our guests to a community-based relationship with, with our guests. It's really exciting, and I'm looking forward to seeing how that all impacts both the work that we do and the work that, and how it impacts our member fifteen years. That's amazing. So, uh, Maori, uh, the last question that we always ask our guests on this podcast, if you could tell everybody in the world one thing about God, what would that one thing be? God is uh, the God is present with you and for you, and the only thing that you need to do is keep your sense of wonder up. You will be surprised in the places and the faces where you will see and experience God. Mm -hmm. Never doubt that. 
That is so incredibly beautiful. So, Amari, I thank you so, so, so much for giving of your very precious time and talents to this podcast and for who you are and what you do and what you help here in this community. You're really, really, really a very special blessing and gift. I'm glad uh, I'm glad the three of you they got together and um, uh, got this podcast going. And I really pray and hope um, that it'll be a blessing and encouragement for for many people and for many years to come. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Amari. Thank you. Thank you. Peace and love, and I'm sure I'll see you soon. Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers is produced by Natalie Bowerman, Emily Hugie, and Jessica Glazer.